Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Long before I was on the radio, I was a listener to talk radio. And one of the frustrations that I've occasionally had over the years as a talk radio listener, maybe more so lately, is that it so often seems that the people that are on the radio talking about certain subjects clearly have no understanding of the subjects they're talking about. They've made no effort to learn about the foreign policy issues that they're commenting on with great authority. They have no idea and have made no effort to learn about any of the legal issues that they're commenting on, the cultural issues, the pop cultural issues. It's very clear that they're basing their entire show, or at least a whole hour, on what they saw in a headline rather than any in-depth analysis or research they've actually tried to do. I've tried to not do that. Hopefully some of the time I'm at least successful. But a person who has stood out as an oasis in what has so often been a desert of, I don't know, shallowness from time to time, not just in talk radio, but in the punditocracy in general, is uh, my next guest. He is a nationally syndicated radio talk show host. He's been a best-selling author. He's a political commentator, and he's been a film critic on some of the uh, greatest institutions, or at least the most watched institutions and most read institutions. Institutions in America. I am very pleased to welcome back to the program the one and only Michael Medved. Michael, it's been too long. Thanks for joining me on the radio. Well, what a pleasure and what an honor and what a gracious introduction, Frank. Thank you so much. Uh, the pleasure is mine, uh, Michael. Appreciate your willingness to stay up late. I know it's not as late for you on the uh, on the West Coast. Uh, first thing I have to ask is this is the first time that uh, we've done one of these radio interviews since you have not been on a landline. Uh, what made you ditch the landline finally after all these years? <laughs> um it made no financial sense to keep it. And the landline was less reliable than uh, my aging iPhone. Um, I have a, an iPhone 6, which um, I, my kids make fun of me uh, because it's it's so out of date. But the thing works, and you'll notice that it's a clear and solid connection. And uh, actually, and. <laughs> <laughs> the the amount that we would have had that we're normally paying to maintain a landline that we never used uh, basically is a, a good bonus. Yeah, um, I'm being completely candid. <laughs> uh, no, I appreciate the uh, I appreciate the candor, and uh, I think that was actually the the iPhone that Alexander Graham Bell used back in the day, the iPhone <laughs> six. That was his. Right, Mr. Mr. Whatever it is, uh, can you hear me? I need you. <laughs> uh, Michael, I want to uh, pick your brain on a few different issues in the news, but uh, one of the reasons I so enjoy talking with you is because I could talk with you about anything. There's nothing I could throw at you with respect to uh, pop culture, with respect to politics, with respect to religion that you uh, don't have a well-considered opinion to. Uh, let me begin by uh, taking advantage of your experience as a film critic. Uh, you uh, co-host sneak previews with Jeffrey Lyons for many years. You were the film critic for the New York Post. You've done a lot in the way of film criticism. The two films that have gotten so much attention over the course of the last three weeks have been Barbie and Oppenheimer. Have you seen both, and uh, what were your reviews of each? 
Yes, of course, I've seen both. And I think the interesting speculation there is how they would be different films if Margot Robbie had played uh, uh, J. Robert Oppenheimer. <laughs> and that, then he would have had a real nuclear explosion, right? I mean, I, look, I think they're both fine films. And uh, the, the one thing is that the, the movie industry has struggled to hang on. It's been a terrible, terrible time for the industry. They did not do well during the pandemic, and now they're only partially coming back. And all of a sudden, they have these two blockbusters released on the same day that have just done unbelievably well. Barbie, uh, these cheap little dolls that my daughters used to like to play with and everybody's daughters used to like to play with. I'm sorry for the sexist remark, but there there is a quite a, a, a wide difference between the level of interest in Barbie uh, for prepubescent guys versus uh, prepubescent girls. In any event, uh, uh, Barbie's made a billion dollars worldwide which is just extraordinary right now. It's the the arguably the most successful comedy ever released wow. already. And it is certainly the most successful film ever directed by a woman. And I thought it was half of a terrific movie. Uh, and the reason I say half of a terrific movie is because it draws you into its world and its whimsy and its fantasy and and all of the characters and the character actors having a terrific time. And then uh, when, when Barbie comes into the real world and all of a sudden starts worrying about death and starts worrying because she spots a, a little bit of cellulite on her thigh. And, uh, and when Will Ferrell comes into it as the uh, typical corporate rapacious uh, evil guy who's identified as Mr. Mattel and and then uh, the, the completely inexplicably in the script, uh, Ken and the other guys in Barbie land, the other Kens, uh, want to reestablish the patriarchy. And all of a sudden, when you start hearing words like patriarchy, the, the fun factor goes way down. Mm. And and I think that the conclusion of the film it, it's it's a fun film to watch. People are loving it. There are people who are going and seeing it three, four, seven times and memorizing all the dialogue. It's one of those cult films and a, and a real favorite. But I just don't think that the conclusion of the movie, which seems sort of arbitrary, and the, the war between men and women, uh, which uh, is not a particularly great piece of filmmaking, that, that that's not living up to the hopeful and very effective, very funny and touching way that the movie begins. The uh, neighbor of mine said he, he had almost a, a violent reaction when someone brought up uh, Barbie when we were all sitting on our uh, front porches the other day talking about this. He said, oh, I heard the film is really anti-man. I'm not going to go see it. Uh, and it sounds like that might be true to some extent. But does the entertainment value of the film trump what uh, some people may may get turned off by in terms of o o overt anti-man? messaging yes it does and and by the way i i mean i know our colleague ben shapiro has <laughs> taken off uh, in uh, a very grumpy and crusty way against uh all of all 
all of Barbie and every uh, little bit of uh, film that is up there on screen. But I, I don't think it's fair. It's uh, Ken is a sympathetic, sort of pathetic character. And uh, what the what the defenders of the film would say is it's not anti-male, it's anti-patriarchy. And the one thing that is interesting about the movie is unlike a lot of modern feminists, the, the movie makes it very clear that men and women need each other and uh, actually uh, belong together. Mm. And uh, it's uh, it's one of those things that has so many layers in it and so much more than you'd expect. And the fact that it's a, they have references to different Barbies, the Margot Robbie plays the stereotypical Barbie, but they also have a, a, um, a bad Barbie uh, played by Kate McKinnon. Uh, they even have a Proust Barbie. Uh, <laughs> and so there are all sorts of uh, allusions in the film. And um, part of it sort of evokes a ba- dance number from Singing in the Rain. It sounds and, fun. Uh, it sounds fun. It is. Yeah. And I, again, there are reasons that people are going to see it all dressed up in pink, of course, uh, or not. And uh, that there are people who are seeing it two, three, seven times. Uh, it's it's uh, one of those films that is a phenomenon. And I, I do think that one of the things about feminism, you know, there was that old, old joke, how many feminists does it take uh, to screw in a light bulb? <laughs> how many? That's not funny. <laughs> uh, but the the film does laugh at, at, at itself and laugh at some of its own pretensions and uh and again the the whimsical aspect of it i think triumphs over any shortcomings i i uh, gave it 3 stars i have a 4 star scale i gave oppenheimer 4 stars cuz that is a remarkable movie and handles some very tricky and complicated politics in a very honest and surprisingly balanced way for a Hollywood movie. Well, and that, uh, go ahead. No, it, it sounds uh, terrific, everything that I've read, and uh, based on what you're seeing. Is that one of those films, uh, because of uh, the uh, special effects or anything like that, that it's worth seeing in the theater rather than waiting for when it's available on uh, on digital or home television or DVD, however people watch movies at home now? Well, it was shot on IMAX, and to see it at IMAX, uh, there are a few minutes of the film that are just unforgettable, and it, it may be worthwhile. And the few minutes of the film is when they recreate the first test nuclear blast, the Trinity blast, and which was so vastly more powerful than the designers and the scientists of the Manhattan Project even managed to, to achieve. The, the one thing that I was afraid of with this film is you're going to make a film about the father of the atom bomb, is that they were going to do an entire nuclear pitch uh, about how evil this was and how wrong we were to drop the bomb. And actually dropping the bomb saved literally millions of lives because the an invasion by conventional forces, uh, uh, American conventional forces against the home islands of Japan, every historian will tell you at least a million Japanese would have died wow. in, in uh, uh, excruciating circumstances, along with um, at least 100,000 Americans. 
And look, my dad was in the Navy at the time. He was one of those people who was expecting to be sent to the invasion of the home islands. The, the movie is honest in portraying the scientific giants, uh, some of whom are played by all, all kinds of different people. Uh, different people turn up in different roles. Uh, Gary Oldman turns up as Harry Truman. And this may be a little bit rough on Truman uh, because he's only in the film for a, for a little while. But generally, it's 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 fair and balanced and open-minded to all of his various characters because there was a sense in which Oppenheimer and the geniuses that he recruited to the Manhattan Project, which was established in the New Mexico desert because that's where uh, Oppenheimer himself had a home retreat. And and it, even when uh, people may know that at the, the last part of the film – uh, deals with uh, and it's shown sort of with four flag uh, with a foretaste uh, throughout the movie, and then goes back and tells its story with flashbacks. Is that Oppenheimer, this world famous scientist who invented the bomb as much as anybody did, lost his security clearance, and he didn't lose it because of anything he had done or said or uh, any betrayal of the country. He lost it because his brother and uh, his wife and his lover were all members of the Communist Party. And uh, Oppenheimer never joined the Communist Party, but uh, the film doesn't uh, end up inveighing against McCarthyism. It shows that at this moment, when Joseph Stalin was the ruler of the Soviet Union, that uh, there was reason to worry and worry very seriously about uh, Stalin gaining uh, mastery of this devastating technology. Wow. Uh, no, it sounds it sounds terrific. I'm uh, looking forward to seeing it. And uh, I didn't think Barbie would ever be something that was in my wheelhouse, but uh, it sounds like that's worth seeing as well. Uh, if people are just tuning in, we're talking with Michael Medved, one of the most listened to uh, radio talk show hosts in the country. Uh, you could check out his website at michaelmedved.com. Uh, Michael, before we move on to, uh, you know, less, uh, you know, less entertaining fare, anything else that people, that's particularly worthy of people checking out or that people should be properly warned to stay away from that's out now? Hmm. There's very little that is getting any traction at all right now that, that is terrible. There's a film opening tomorrow, and uh, this is just uh, especially for your audience ahead of time when I'm supposed to be reviewing the film. But it's a good review, so I won't get in trouble with the uh, producers. But uh, is a new film called uh, The uh, Pod Generation. And it's with Amelia Clark, who is that sort of rising star. People know her from Game of Thrones. And mm. uh, she um, she plays a woman in the near future. And it's not clear how far ahead it is, but she has put her name on a waiting list for what they call the womb center. And the womb center allows you and your significant other, if he's male, to combine on a uh, fertilizing an ovum. And then they take that ovum and they actually put it in a big egg and give it to you. So you can have the pregnancy without 
all the fuss and bother and uh, without uh, a- any pain or a weight gain or mood change. And uh, it, it's a sort of a fascinating glimpse of the future. It, it actually surprises me that they haven't actually offered this kind of thing yet. Of course, it's a big high-tech company that makes this available. And this really does have to do with uh, people walking around and strapping to themselves these big plastic eggs where their uh, uh, fetus is is actually uh, growing and developing. And if uh, there is such a thing as a pro-life movie that actually it, it looks back uh, longingly at the normal joys and challenges and vagaries of uh, human pregnancy, this is it. Uh, this is a pro-life movie. And uh, at a time when this is such a divisive issue in the country and uh, people are arguing about every aspect of it, uh, one of the things that this movie conveys is that uh, pregnancy, uh, especially if it goes normally and if it goes well and it results in a baby, uh, is is a, the greatest blessing you can receive in this life. Well, that, that is uh, wonderful, and uh, especially with everything that's happening with uh, technology and uh, all that we're hearing about declining birth rates, it sounds like it's definitely a picture worth uh, checking out. Uh, Michael, I know you've been writing from, I think, the time that you were in uh, in Yale, and uh, you've been writing on a wide variety of subjects for a long time. You've certainly done a lot in, in politics early in your career. You've uh, been hosting kind of news-oriented radio talk shows since the mid-90s, but you've been reviewing films since, you know, I guess the early 80s. How did you make I, that? I, I started on the air in 19, April of 1980. Wow. Uh, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, uh, so uh, for people that are wondering, uh, because they don't necessarily go hand-in-hand hand the way a uh, politician-turned-radio talk show host might or uh, or a film writer-turned-film uh, critic might, how did you make that transition from film critic to mainstream radio talk show host? Well, actually, I, I made the transition out of politics into film criticism. It was the uh, opposite way of, uh, of the opposite direction. D- to, to do a, a long, complicated story very simply, after college, I went to college at Yale. I studied American history. And I was very Yale addicted. I was very happy there for four years. And so I only applied to one law school. I didn't want to go to law school, but I got into Yale Law School. I got a national fellowship. And I was going uh, to Yale Law School where my classmates included Bill and Hillary Clinton and Clarence Thomas, by the way. And uh, I, I became, I got an offer during the time I was in law school and I was very active to uh, uh, get paid to uh, be a speechwriter in what seemed to me a very interesting campaign. Uh, there was this guy who was challenging a very corrupt U.S. senator named Thomas Dodd, who had been censured by the Senate, and he was the Democratic nominee. And then anyway, I got involved in this campaign. I got a, a leave of absence from law school. And then for the next four years, I was doing political speechwriting. And it was interesting. My politics then was not similar to what it is now. 
I, uh, I was, had been part of the Bobby Kennedy campaign, which is almost embarrassing to say now because of Robert Kennedy Jr. Well, yeah. uh, I was going to ask you about him and Robert Kennedy Sr. in just a minute, but please finish the thought. Yeah, and so, so what happened was um, I had taken a five-year leave of absence from law school, and then I had the chance to come back to my fellowship and go back to Yale Law School. But I didn't want to be a lawyer, and I had already gotten a book agent uh, because of the political writing. And I said, help, I need a book contract because then, then I can at, at least honorably not return to, uh, to law school. And he said, uh, draw up a, um, uh, as many ideas for books as you can think of. He ended up selling three of them. Wow. <laughs> and one of the uh, book titles, the first one I sold was called The Shadow Presidents, The Secret History of the Chief Executives and Their Chiefs of Staff. And it it ended up being published by the New York Times um, book company. And another one, a little bit less serious, was The 50 Worst Films of All Time, uh, which I end as a film fan. I thought, oh, this this will be a goof. And my then... 14-year-old brother uh, helped me with it, and uh, um, it was because of that book I, I kept being asked back to this same segment on CNN, and they asked me back seven, eight times to talk about the worst movies ever, and it was fun, and then one time they stopped me as I was leaving the set and said, how would you like to come back and do this every week? And it didn't even occur to me that I'd get paid for it. I thought I was just going to be selling books, but no, I did get paid for it. And that's how, uh, while keeping my involvement in politics and going out and promoting the shadow presidents, uh, and then combining the politics and the film in, in my book, Hollywood versus America, which came out in 1992. Uh, that's, that's basically how it works, Frank. You're getting a much more, Fulsome understanding of a complicated process I, I love than it. I usually convey. What, what might be an even more complicated process, but I suspect many of our listeners can empathize uh, through the, a, a similar degree of metamorphosis in their own lives, is how you went from a liberal political activist, at least what was considered liberal back then, working on the campaigns of people like Robert Kennedy, to being a, a conservative, not just any conservative, but a, a fairly conservative individual who a lot of uh, people on the right look to for guidance on a lot of intellectual issues. W was it a, a, a one thing that caused you to make that transition, or was it a multitude of things? No, it's, it, it was the that whole old story of a uh, neoconservative is a liberal who's been mugged by reality. And uh, it was a combination of things. I mean, one of the things that I ended up because of politics uh, following politics out to Berkeley, California. And uh, listen, anybody who is still a liberal after living in the Bay Area is crazy or blind. And it just doesn't work. Those ideas don't work. And, uh, and, and I talk about, I did a book, as you know, called Right Turns, which is how I went from being a punk liberal activist to being a lovable conservative curmudgeon. And one of one of the ways uh, really, well, first of all, a lot had to do with Ronald Reagan, who was the first Republican for 
And uh, he was only the second uh, president that I had the opportunity to vote for. But uh, because previously I had made the mistake of voting for Jimmy Carter over Gerald Ford, which I do think was a grand mistake. But uh, look, anyone who knows or remembers the history of the 1980s uh, remembers what a positive difference uh, President Reagan made for not just uh, the facts in America and uh, the economy and the national security and, and pushing us toward the edge of victory in the Cold War, not just for all of that, but for the spirit and the soul and the pride and the positivity in America. And this, to me, is what's wrong with this doddering duopoly of the two grumpy old men who are going to be our presidential choices this time. And that leads me to uh, precisely what I was going to ask you about. And uh, it w- Hi, it's Ernie Anastas. You know, your thoughts can affect how you feel, and how you feel can impact your thoughts. Addressing your mind and body connection is the key to improving your overall wellness. Bergen Newbridge Medical Center is the largest hospital in New Jersey, providing comprehensive, equitable, compassionate, and high-quality emergency inpatient and outpatient medical care, plus mental health services and substance use disorder treatment. The Bergen New Bridge team can address your total health needs in one convenient location. Call 201-225-7130 for an appointment or newbridgehealth.org. We're talking with Michael Medved. Learn more about him. Check out his show, michaelmedved.com. You are certainly a conservative, and I think your conservative bona fides can't be questioned. You've filled in for people like Rush Limbaugh, had one of the most highly rated conservative radio talk shows for, you know, for a long time. You have upset a lot of people in our audience with your criticism of Donald Trump over the last seven years, both on uh, substance and on style. Uh, If it is a Trump versus Biden rematch, uh, what does a Michael Medved or a Michael Medved type voter, someone that's kind of a Reagan conservative but turned off by Trump, both for his antics and for some of his policies, what does a Michael Medved do in the voting booth? Well, first of all, work as hard as possible to have a viable Republican nominee and uh, somebody not named Trump. Correct. I don't think President Trump is going to be a viable nominee. I know it drives people crazy when I say that. But look, aside from the fact that uh, I think that uh, of the four major groups of indictments that he is going to face, he'll win two of them. Easily. And the other two, I don't know. I think he has real chances of conviction. And we have just, this is all uncharted territory. But the idea of somebody running for president at the time that his biggest preoccupation is uh, personally staying out of jail. It's it's really not a good look for the Republican Party. The the question that I would ask would be, okay, what is this potential president, whoever his or her name is, what is he going to do for the country? And basically, all you hear from Trump is, okay, I'm going to survive these these uh, ceaseless sometimes unfair, sometimes over-the-top liberal attacks on me. And it becomes such a personal focus on one personality. I, uh, I, I mean, I think if people could imagine for a moment that 
just there was the the two gentlemen, one who's 77 years old, the other who's 80 years old, uh, got up there and said, look, uh, we have both decided to step aside uh, because our country needs new leadership and fresh leadership. Uh, I, I don't think the country uh, needs to go back to the day in, in two, 2020 before the election that elected Joe Biden. I don't think we need more conversations about whether the election was stolen in 2020. I'm worried about the conversations about whether the election is going to be stolen in 2024. And by the way, this goes to the Democrats uh, even more so. Uh, Biden is a really, really problematic candidate, and particularly some of these revelations that have come out by the congressional committees that are looking into Hunter Biden and to the fact that the president has been lying uh, very, very dramatically and very, very obviously for just literally years saying he knew nothing about business when the evidence is now incontrovertible that he was deeply involved. That's the kind of thing that should lead someone to step aside and not turn it over, God forbid, to Kamala Harris, who is <laughs> well, Biden's biggest mistake, at least so far. And uh, but, but again, there are people on both sides, but particularly on the Republican side, who are ready for the presidency, have all the qualifications. I had on Asa Hutchinson on my show today. He was a former governor of Arkansas, he's a former congressman, head of the Drug Enforcement Administration, uh, a, and a, a federal prosecutor, and a really solid conservative, Reagan conservative guy. And uh, look, I think that uh, Governor Christie, uh, despite the fact that he's he he hasn't forgiven uh, Donald Trump for giving him uh, COVID. Uh, aside from the fact that he's is just so focused on negativity on Trump, uh, uh, Tim Scott, uh, Nikki Haley is an impressive candidate, and uh, the Republicans are out there. They're going to be debating thirteen nights from tonight. And uh, maybe the fact that Trump is not likely to be there will allow some of these other people and other alternatives to get some of the momentum they need and deserve. Uh, Michael, I could talk with you all day. I have uh, pages worth of, uh, of subjects that I could bring up just based on what you've said and things that I'm just genuinely curious about, curious about uh, in terms of your perspective. Uh, let me end with this, though. We have seen, I know that you're very religious, you happen to be uh, Jewish, and we've seen opinion poll after opinion poll show in recent years that this is the largest unchurched uh, percentage of of the American population in history. Uh, I'm wondering if you think those polls hold true, because obviously you can make these polls say anything you want, and two, what you think the implications of the loss of faith are in America, or the decline of faith? Wow, uh, the, those are terrific questions, Frank, and they, they are very profound questions. I don't think there's any question when you talk to people who are uh, ministers, priests, or rabbis, uh, that there has been a decline in religiosity. In the Jewish community, it's a little bit different. 
because um, most Jews were already unobservant, and there has already become, and when I say already, certainly since World War II, uh, there has become a little bit of a tendency, and this is particularly true in New York, where the Orthodox community has grown phenomenally. And literally a majority of young Jewish souls below the age of 18 uh, identify or are in families that identify as Orthodox in New York City. And that New York City, of course, is the biggest Jewish city in the country. Uh, in terms of uh, Christianity, the the... The the group that has suffered the most has been what people call mainline denominations, and uh, that's denominations like Episcopalian and uh, Methodist and uh, one of the Presbyterian uh, uh, organizations. And uh, whereas evangelicals have held their own, uh, Mormons, who uh, are another story, have done remarkably well. That's a growing and flourishing religion. One of the difficulties, and I think this is is something that uh, I, I have not spoken to anybody who disagrees with this, anybody, but that, that it's been a bad move for religion to get so involved in politics. In other words, I, I, one of the things that people need to do is to come to religion with an open mind and an open heart and to learn and to study and to deepen your own understanding of God's ways in the world and of the meanings of the words of Scripture. And uh, that's important. The problem is, in America, everybody's an expert on politics. (laughs) Ain't that the truth. And uh, so what you're doing is, uh, if, if a pastor or a rabbi takes a regular political position, he's going to end up uh, driving away part of his congregation. And what we need to do is to make the entire religious calling, the entire experience of going to uh, church or synagogue, uh, experience uh, that is rewarding and, and, and joyous, And because I am observant and try to be, (laughs) I end up walking six miles every every Sabbath, three miles to our 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 synagogue in the woods, and uh, and then three miles back. And it's one of the great joys and gifts of my life. And I uh, I'm thankful that I'm healthy enough to continue that practice, and that uh, spiritually healthy enough, I would hope that I will continue to feel rewarded by it. Uh, Michael, it is always a treat talking with you. I'll look forward to the next time we uh, get to chat. When, uh, whenever you're in New York next, maybe we can even chat in studio. Although it'll be, uh, it'll be in the Eastern Time Zone, which may not uh, not comport to these hours quite as well. Thank you very much, Michael. I appreciate it, and uh, whatever time of night it is, it, it's it's worth. Uh, Staying up uh, to talk to Frank Morano. Michael, very kind. Michael Medved, uh, check out michaelmedved.com. If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you could do so. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight.